Five by Fifteen Vancouver features five stellar speakers speaking for fifteen minutes each on a topic they're passionate about. Each fifteen-minute episode is a glimpse into a world. Five by Fifteen Vancouver was presented by SFU Library, supported by SFU Publishing, and created in association with Five by Fifteen, a global speaker series. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and University of British Columbia. Media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio, and our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, and British Columbia Arts Council. Welcome to 5x15 Vancouver. Pico Iyer is one of the most revered and respected travel writers alive today. An essayist for time since 1986, he has traveled to over 170 countries and is a regular contributor to the New York Times, Harper's, and more than 200 newspapers and magazines worldwide. Catch Pico Iyer in an intimate 15-minute talk on matters of life and death. Enter the latest Kardashian. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, uh, I was in Florida at a literary gathering, and suddenly, in the dead of night, the phone rang. And it was my wife, whom you just heard about, Hiroko, from her hometown in Kyoto, Japan, saying that her 91-year-old father, who'd been bounding around Kyoto the previous week, had suddenly been taken into the hospital. And I unfortunately had various commitments in Florida. And three days later, the phone rang again. And it was Hiroko saying that her father had gone. And I think a death in the family anywhere is a wake-up call and a cause for sober reflection. And I think the emotions that follow upon a death are pretty much universal. But the rights that follow upon a death in Japan are very particular. As soon as a body is cremated, the family members gather, often with gratitude and delight, and wielding chopsticks, they pick out bones from a mountain of ash to take back home as relics. As soon as her father died, Hiroko had to buy a really expensive Buddhist name to protect him in the afterworld. She also had to buy an even more expensive gravestone, which at certain points in the year is encircled by lanterns, so that her father, like the other departed, can come back to Earth, look in on his much-missed loved ones, and then find his way back to his home in the heavens. To this day, which is six years after that death, she still wakes up very early every morning, heats up water for his favorite kind of tea, gathers her father's favorite snack, and puts them out on the household altar for him, uh, which happens to be right next to the boombox on which she will soon be blasting out a Green Day's 21st century nervous breakdown. <laughs> and whenever she gets a free day from her job selling semi-punky English clothes in a department store, she gets into a bus, and then a train, and then another train, and then a third train for a two-hour trip each way to what in Japan is known of as a city of tomorrow, a graveyard, 
to fill in her long-departed grandmother and her late father on the family news. In a practical way, as soon as her father died, she had to move her 86-year-old mother, whom her father had been looking after, to a nursing home. She had to get a will signed by her brother, which sounded very easy because he lives just 15 minutes away, but actually it was quite difficult because he had cut off the entire family 25 years before on the grounds that his sister had gotten a divorce. And our daughter returned from Spain, where she had been living, with her boyfriend. But we didn't really know if she was back for good or if we would soon lose her forever to Europe. And so suddenly, overnight, we were in this wilderness of questions. And I came back into the autumn, and I always try to be in Japan during the autumn because the skies are brilliantly blue, absolutely cloudless, warmer than Southern California into the early days of December. But of course, underneath that blue are all the scarlets and golds and lemon yellows of the turning leaves. And I know you have a resplendent autumn here in Vancouver, but there's something about the mix of wistfulness and buoyancy in the Japanese autumn that really pierces me. Uh, they say around Kyoto that life is about a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And I really feel the joy and the sorrow more keenly in the Japanese autumn than any other time. Now, having said all that, I must confess that if any of you were to visit our apartment in Japan, you would be horrified. It's completely Western. There's not a trace of tatami mat or exquisite shoji screen. And we live in an entirely makeshift 1970s Western suburb that looks like a stage set from a Steven Spielberg movie. Uh, all the buildings in our neighborhood are Western style. All the streets are completely straight. Uh, there's not a single shrine or temple in the entire community. And the two main drags are actually called school dory and park dory, using the English terms to convince, I think, my mostly retired elderly neighbors that they finally attained their dream of living in California. <laughs> but, our synthetic suburb is on the outskirts of the city of Nara, which was the capital of Japan in the year 710. And Nara today is a big, bustling city. It's more populous than Cincinnati or Pittsburgh. But right at its heart, the center of downtown, is the largest municipal park in all Japan. And it is studded with temples and shrines, sutra houses, and most visibly, 1,200 wild deer who roam around untamed, pretty much ruling the place. Uh, literally, if you go to the five-story glass and concrete city hall, you'll usually see stags seated on its front steps. Uh, if you check into the fanciest hotel in Nara, you'll be greeted not by doorman, but by doe. And I think this image of a, a mock Californian suburb on the brink of somewhere ancient and deep 
and saturated with spirits is really how I see Japan even now in the 21st century. Just across the street from uh, our apartment for many, many years was a health club. And in those days, whenever she had a day off, uh, my wife would get up again very early, put on headband and leggings, <laughs> and head across the street for eight hours of kickboxing <laughs> and weight training and high-intensity aerobics and jazzercise and yoga and who knows what. Um, you can tell already I can barely stand at this podium without collapsing. I'm not exactly a paragon of athletic prowess. But uh, my wife is Japanese, which means she is graced with patience. And 17 years after we first met, she came back from the health club one day and she said, oh, didn't you used to play ping pong as a boy? Uh, I confessed I did. She said, oh, you know, they're offering ping pong now in the health club gentle hint. Um, I snarled something dismissive, but a few weeks later I consented to go across the street to look in on the ping pong. And as she'd imagined, or maybe as she'd feared, within three minutes I was lost for life to ping pong. Uh, I have lived in Japan for 32 years now on a tourist visa because um, <laughs> it sounds like a joke, but sadly it's true. Um, I've never really wanted to engage in the official parts of Japan uh, because they seem to me to involve the least interesting and imaginative sides of the country. And I've always been drawn to everything that's private and interior and domestic, which is endlessly full of secrets and surprises. But in the ping pong club, suddenly I was the only foreigner in a group of 30 Japanese. And at my mighty five foot seven and a half, I was almost the tallest in the entire group. Uh, in my 50s, I was the youngest by several decades. And when my wife looked in on the ping pong proceedings, um, she realized with alarm that her hairless, hapless husband was a kind of Justin Bieber figure. Um, literally a teen idol by comparison with my elderly friends. And I think my neighbors are genuinely quite happy to have a token Westerner as a mascot in the club. And so ping pong became my way of trying to understand how to fit inside a Japanese circle, which means, among other things, trying really, really hard with every point, but never wanting to win. And every now and then in the ping pong club, a teenager will show up and my octogenarian friends will thrash him, which just reminds me that autumn has certain strengths that even spring might envy. <laughs> and so the autumn that I was describing in this book, Autumn Light, kept on unfolding. And I think all of us were keenly aware that when a couple has been together for 60 years, if one of them leaves the earth, very often the other goes soon thereafter, and so we were really worried about my mother-in-law. And we were still waiting to see whether my missing brother-in-law would ever come back to say goodbye to his late father, or hello to his mother, who was really failing fast. And I started thinking about my own mother, who at that point was 82, living alone on top of a mountain in California, regularly encircled by forest fire flames. And I realized that if I was looking after my mother-in-law, I was neglecting my mother, and if I was tending to my mother, I was ignoring my mother-in-law. 
And every now and then, friends will come to visit us in Japan and they'll nearly always ask about the place of religion in Japan. And I'm often tempted to tell them that in some respects, the main religion in Japan, as I see it, is the seasons, which of course is a religion without dogma, without texts, without exclusions, but it's a constant teaching about changelessness and change. And every late November, when the tiny five-pointed maples blaze most brilliantly, all my neighbors put on their Sunday best and they flock out into the temple gardens and parks, much, I think, as people here might once have gone to church, to be joined in a congregation and to be reminded of forces much larger than we are to put us in place and to catch slants of light amidst the coming darkness. Many of you probably know that in Japan there is one word that's used for the self that exists in private behind closed doors and another completely different word for the self that's loose and out in the world. And it's assumed, I think, there'd be no connection between the two. And I often feel that cherry blossoms, which of course are bright, cheerful, frothy, little erotic, that's the face that Japan likes to present to the larger world. But deep down in its heart, I think it's the maple leaf and that mingling of radiance and melancholy. Uh, many of you here probably know the films of the great Japanese director Ozu from the 1950s, Tokyo Story and Late Spring. And you remember that in nearly all his films, there's a scene in which there's a boisterous festival out in the street and there's a sound of somebody weeping in the room next door. And I think that's the feeling I was trying to catch in, in this book. And I'll just end or bring this towards a, a merciful close by saying that when I first arrived in Japan, and I think probably when most people first arrived from here, Canada in Japan, what they're most struck by is everything zany and Western and modern, everything we hear a lot about in our media. Uh, the robots that officiate over weddings and the wild goth fashions. Uh, and the phenomenon which is getting a lot of play over here these days, whereby if an elderly couple uh, don't have a daughter to look in on them, or if she's moved to British Columbia, they'll literally hire an actress who every Sunday will come and knock on their door and say, hi mom, hi dad, I've really missed you, let's have a lovely Sunday afternoon together. And they'll suspend disbelief to fill that hole in their hearts. And I think sometimes to us that sounds very strange, but in Japan, it's an eminently practical solution to a very real problem. At the same time, when you live, of course, inside a family or a community or a neighborhood, you realize it's the same story as anywhere, even if it's playing out in a different script. And so when I go to my local post office, the ladies around me are all talking about waiting lists at nursing homes and how they feel really guilty if they ship their mother out to a nursing home, but really frazzled if they don't. And how in some ways we're all experiencing the human equivalent of climate change, whereby August is visiting in mid-February 
Humans are living longer than we've ever lived before, but that often means we're living for years after our minds and our memories have begun to come apart. So, just to conclude on a, on a personal note, I was confessing to somebody at dinner just now that I grew up from the age of nine, flying every three months between my 15th century boarding school in England and my parents' yellow house in the heart of hippie California. And of course, uh, an ancient school in England is a rigorous training in skepticism and at least claiming not to believe in anything. And young, fresh California was a daily invitation, more or less, to believe in everything. And so I think, like all of us, but maybe even more, my whole life and most of my writing has been about trying to put hope and realism into the same sentence. Uh, and so 11 years ago, I wrote a book on the Dalai Lama, with whom I once spent some wonderful days here in Vancouver, because he seems like an ultimate master of realism, but of course he never gives up on hope. And a little later, I came through the same theme, but via the back door, by writing about the great British novelist Graham Greene, who I think is an undeluded observer of the modern world, but again, who never gave up on faith. And in this new book of mine, I'm just trying to bring the blue skies and the rusting leaves together. And one day, I took a book out into my terrace. The, the bell won't panic too much. This is the final sentence almost. And as I was reading the book, it was by the, the wise American novelist Edith Wharton, and it was her autobiography. And on the very last page of her autobiography, as she looked back on her 60 years of life, she said, though the years are sad, the days have a way of being jubilant. And I thought, maybe that's a step towards an answer. Thank you.